This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 15th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The global pandemic caused dramatic shifts in employment, demand for goods and services, and a massive reduction in economic activity. In a new report from the Cato Institute, Pandemics and Policy, Ryan Bourne contributes an essay on the price and wage controls imposed at the state and local level and their predictable results. What have been the economic impacts thus far in this pandemic of various state and and local attempts to control wages or prices? Well, I think it's obvious to everyone that the pandemic has been profoundly disruptive both to the demand side and the supply side of both products and labor markets. Uh, If you think about the demand side, we saw the huge collapse in industries which require people to be socializing uh, or close to each other in close physical proximity. We saw soaring demand for health products, for certain types of groceries that people use at home, um, and a big switch from commercial to um, retail versions of products. On the supply side, we saw um, huge uh, regulations imposed on certain industries, disruption because of the health effects and things like meatpacking. So combine these things and there are good reasons to expect you'd see pretty big price variation compared to what we had in in so-called normal times. Um, So what my chapter has sought to do here is try to walk through the economics of what we'd expect to happen if you impose price and wage controls in that environment where the supply and demand conditions are are changing dramatically. And I think the, the key consequences are twofold. I think the first consequence is that um, as a result of the contraction in supply or expansion in demand for a whole range of products, the anti-price gouging laws that almost all states, bar, bar I think it's 14 states don't have them, uh, have imposed, would delay the adjustment to this new world if suppliers thought that these were going to be uh, enforced. What do I mean by that? Well, think about hand sanitizer, for example. We saw a huge run in demand for hand sanitizer. Now, ordinarily in markets, one would imagine that as that demand rises, you have uh, more money chasing a fixed number of goods. In uh, the first instance, prices would start to rise. As those prices rise, um, people start to think twice about whether they should buy that second tube existing suppliers ramp up production because it's now more profitable for them to you know run overtime and all sorts of things to meet this new demand uh, and new suppliers are incentivized to come in to serve this now larger market now that all happens over time as as people see that hand sanitizer is is relatively more profitable than other industries but these anti price gouging regulations by dampening that incentive in the first instance, can slow that adjustment process. Now, on the wage side, um, obviously, lots of states and localities have been increasing their minimum wage laws in recent years. Um, and in lots of low-wage sectors where those those cost bases have, have gone up dramatically, um, we're seeing huge collapses in demand, uh, which one would imagine uh, w- is resulting in collapses in demand as well for workers in those industries. Now, if firms are unable to adjust wages in those sectors, with all of the other regulations being imposed upon them and all of the other difficulties that they're facing, it stands to reason that on top of everything else, um, these wage controls, these high minimum wages, are going to lead them to lay off or reduce the hours of more workers than they otherwise would have. 
what have we seen from the federal government in terms of trying to control the prices of goods, uh, labor, and other services? Well, I think there's there's two things going on here, really. Um, there isn't a federal anti-price gouging law, though politicians have been trying to implement one, uh, particularly Democratic politicians. In, in the House, we saw um, Gerald Nadler and a bunch of his colleagues uh, try to introduce a federal statute that would have imposed price controls such that firms wouldn't have been able to increase prices which uh, grossly exceed prices um, 90 days up to the 31st of January or compared with last year or compared with their competitors. So quite a broad-ranging law. Um, and in the Senate, the now vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren tried to introduce a law which would, in essence, have rolled out California's approach to the whole country, the Californication of the whole um, US, which would have capped price rises during emergencies at a maximum of, of 10%. Now, those efforts have obviously been unsuccessful so far. But one of the reasons I wrote this paper is that as we go into different stages of this pandemic, um, with the disruption we've seen and the closure of lots of businesses, if we are to get a medical innovation that leads to a relatively uh, swift end to this pandemic. One would imagine that supply and demand patterns will uh, significantly adjust again, and we could see major variations in prices. And whereas politicians and much of the public uh, don't seem to think there's anything inherently wrong with dramatic falls in prices, which of course we saw initially with flights and uh, a range of other uh, leisure industries, um, they do appear to have a big problem with major increases in prices, uh, even if those reflect supply and demand conditions. So really, uh, in that sense, although there hasn't been active federal action yet, that part of the paper is warning against doing that if we are to see major price variations as a result of changes in supply and demand patterns in future. There is this natural abhorrence to prices for essential goods going way up during some sort of emergency. And I understand that. Um, places like Costco and others did not, as far as I know, raise prices on things like toilet paper and the shelves were empty. Yeah, that's certainly right. And I remember walking into a CVS in those early months of the pandemic in late March and a whole shelf of completely empty where hand sanitizers used to be with a little price sticker below it saying buy one get one half price um and there seemed to be no awareness on the part of the company that that pricing strategy might have contributed to the quick emptying of the stores right but it's companies a- but companies that are doing that they'd rather be out of a product than project that they're trying to stiff you that's right and certainly some profit maximizing firms they look through um the potential to earn more profits on this because they recognize that consumers consider major price rises during emergencies um, abhorrent. And that's a natural thing for them to do. So Walmart, for example, when there's um, hurricanes or emergencies in regard to kind of natural disasters, they don't tend to raise prices. And what they do is divert a lot of the supply that they have to the affected area and seek to just serve the demand at ordinary prices. And they're able to do that and they're able to absorb it uh, into their profit margin. Um, 
The difficulty in this regard, though, is that this isn't a localized issue. This is a national issue. So it's much more difficult to do that. And so when firms, major firms that do have reputational concerns, do uh, avoid raising prices, it's incumbent on or what you tend to see is the pressure then pushed into kind of other parts of the sector. So we did see major price rises for hand sanitizer, for toilet paper, and a whole range of other things are on certain online uh, sellers and websites. And they're able to do that because they have um, less long-term reputation to lose, particularly uh, new sellers. There's been some good academic research that said that new sellers are able to charge higher prices than older sellers. The problem with anti-price gouging laws then is not only do we already have a degree of kind of within market price suppression, uh, but anti-price gouging laws then clamp down or produce a disincentive to adjust prices in those kind of uh, safety valves that we have within the market sector. And if you then deter smaller businesses or new online sellers from serving uh, demands at prices people are willing to pay, you create much more of a problem in terms of disincentivizing new supply. So as a result, we get sustained shortages throughout the market. In a time of sort of dramatic shifts in employment in both directions in the last uh, few months, uh, first a massive decline in, in uh, employment, uh, and then, depending on how you look at it, either a dead cat bounce of employment, people coming back into uh, working, or maybe this is a, a longer term uh, trend. Many states have proceeded apace with their plans, plans to raise the minimum wage, even as workers are out of work and really, really seeking work and employers are having a di more difficult time relatively keeping the lights on. Yeah, so in recent years, we've seen quite dramatic increases in the minimum wage, the state and local level. Of course, some of the jurisdictions most affected by COVID-19 have very, very high local wage floors. New York City, for example, and half of other states, I believe, have raised their wage rates in the past three years. And it's not always the case that you should dramatically adjust all policies just around what's happening um, in an emergency situation. But I do think that those past increases in the minimum wage are likely to be more damaging during this emergency time. Now, why is that? Well, as you say, demand and supply patterns have changed dramatically, and one would imagine that would affect the demand and supply for labor as well. We saw, for example, companies like Amazon and supermarkets increasing their wages at the start of this pandemic as demand for their products uh, went through the roof. And in the same vein, industries in which demand has collapsed and there's been a sustained depression, one would imagine that if firms were free to adjust uh, wages, then that effect would overweigh any uh, effect of workers being less willing to work in the sectors because of the risks of catching COVID and, and market wages would fall. Now, the reason I think that past minimum wages uh, could have quite a big impact during this a pandemic is twofold, really. The first is because uh, analysis from the Bureau of Labor Statistics has shown that the occupations with lower wages are much more common in the shutdown and most affected sectors than elsewhere in the economy. So industries with very, very high concentrations of low-wage jobs, of course, includes restaurants and bars and travel and transportation, entertainment, personal services, 
Um, and most of those industries haven't uh, fully rebounded after opening. Um, so faced with less demand and having to implement a load of regulations or protocols in the businesses which make them less efficient, businesses in those sectors are desperate to cut costs. And if they cannot cut pay rates, uh, one would imagine they'll cut hours worked or jobs, particularly given demand has been suppressed. The second uh, reason, though, is that the pandemic itself is likely to have uh, really exacerbated what economists describe as the kind of dynamic uh, di the dynamic nature of the labor market. And what do I mean by that? Well, during expansions, um, the focus for a lot of businesses is on meeting rising demand rather than cost cutting. And that means some of the older kind of lower skilled, less labor intensive businesses um, survive and try to maintain workers um, because of growing demand, despite the pressures of uh, rising minimum wage rates, which affect the cost base. But when you get a large shock such as COVID-19, it tends to generate a more disruptive impact on business destruction and business creation. And we're seeing a lot more change, as you described uh, there, Caleb, of people leaving jobs, moving into new jobs, uh, businesses failing, um, new businesses being set up. So one would imagine that this type of shock means a lot of firms with those kind of old technologies, the more labor-intensive businesses, this is a time where they really uh, looked to adjust in the way that they don't really have to. There's no pressure to do so when demand is continuously growing. So for those two reasons, I think um, to a certain extent, the past minimum wage rises are now kind of chickens coming home to roost. And we, they could both uh, lead to more layoffs than we otherwise would see if we hadn't seen those big wage rises, but also act as a bit of a deterrent for new firms being set up to be labor intensive businesses and, and more likely to try and find ways of automating or replacing workers in some ways or you know making their businesses more productive and less in need of low-skilled labor. Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.